Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello, Gender Stories listeners, and welcome to another episode. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to another fabulous guest today. Our guest is Tristan Reese, an established thought leader, educator, and speaker who focuses on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's a professionally trained anti-racism facilitator and curriculum designer, studying under Reverend Dr. Jamie Washington at the Social Justice Training Institute. Tristan has also been organizing with the trans community for nearly two decades and has been on the front lines of this generation's biggest fights for LGBTQ justice. He's also the author of a book that's about to come out, How Do We How We Do Family. Sorry, the title is How We Do Family. And I believe the publishing date is June 29 of 2021, so very soon. Um, and I had the privilege to read Tristan's book, and here we are to talk about your book. Welcome. Thank you. It's so weird. In my mind, I was like, oh, it comes out on June 29th, so no one will read it until June 29th. And so the idea that like my baby's already out into the world and people are like making judgments about it, I'm just not ready. <laughs> just fair. not ready. <laughs> That's fair. Let's well, let's talk about that. What 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 do you worry about? Because I know as an author, I know what it's like to have a book baby in the world. And so what what's happening for you as this kind of book baby is out into the world? Yeah, so many things. You know, I, I think probably most importantly, I really oscillate between like, holy crap, I know I fucked up. Like at some at some point in the book, like I know, you know, a, a family member may be angry at me because I misremembered a conversation that we had or I only shared my perspective on that conversation, you know, and community wise, I'm like, oh, I'm sure I used I mean, especially trans people hate the way that I explain the difference between gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression. I still use a really binary, like colonial framework. Um, because, but the book isn't for trans people. Trans people don't think that I'm interesting literally at all. I think actually you're the only trans podcast that I've been invited to, to be on. Because like, ooh, a man having a baby, who cares? <laughs> right, that happens every day in trans community. Why are we even talking about it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So on the one hand, I am, I'm really scared for that, you know, that kind of thing. That like, yes, I'm sure that I said things that in a way that people didn't like. And yes, I'm sure, you know, that people are going to come for me on social media. So on the on the one hand, I'm like really scared of that. On the other hand, I really try to think about that fear as just energy in my body. And if I know that I can't make it go away, you know, not energy can neither be created nor destroyed. I can't destroy it, but I can reframe it as excitement. And so I'm just trying to really move into that headspace of like, I'm going to learn so much about the people that read the book, about myself, about what language I can use instead, about who to listen to when it comes to criticism. Um, 
yeah, so I'm really excited to see where I fucked up and to learn. And also, I'm just, I'm so tender. And it does feel like a book is so permanent in a way that I can just go back and edit an Instagram post. I can delete a tweet, mm-hmm. you know, but like when it's like an actual paper thing, it's like, right. oh my God, I cannot go back and just like rework that sentence anymore. <laughs> I relate to that so much. Um, there is stuff that I've written and language that I've used historically, even as a scholar, that we don't use anymore. I'm 50. We didn't always use this language. I've used words like biological sex, which now I would never use. And totally. they're imprint forever and anybody can find them. And there is a vulnerability that comes with that, right? Yeah, There really is. And, and I think especially because of the harm that trans folks have experienced, you know, we're, we are so defensive. And I mean that literally to defend yeah. oneself. You know, we have been attacked for so long that then everything looks like an attack, even when it's not. And often what trauma does is it causes us to universalize our own experience. You know, so just for example, I made some post somewhere that said, you know, transgender, comma, non-binary, comma, gender non-conforming. And a non-binary person just was pissed. And was like, non-binary people are transgender. I'm like, okay, well, the data shows us that only 70 to 80% of non-binary people also identify as transgender. And I'm also working to fight non-binary invisibility. I don't want to have just one catch-all term for everyone. I like to enumerate it out, not to say it's some other separate thing, but just to say, like, I see you. I know that your needs are unique, and I want to be paying attention to them. This person just, like, of course, doubled down. And how do you tell someone, okay, your experience is not, like, the experience. You do not speak for all non-binary people everywhere. Thank you very much. And Absolutely. so it is, it's, it is, it's complicated. It's hard. So even when you're using like the, like supposedly best practices. I mean, the fact is that there is no absolute truth. Right. And, and, and that's why I love that your book is out in the world. I mean, I know that maybe in trans community, we're like, okay, a trans man having a baby, whatever, but actually there aren't that many kind of narratives and memoirs around the topic of family and and what you write about. And also, you know, I'm very much a fan of we need hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of trans narratives out there. And I'm not a big fan of that can be only one. This is like the trans memoir, right? There are so many of us with so many different identities and experiences. So I was thrilled to read your book personally. And uh, I was hooked right at the beginning because you talk about your own kind of um, identity as a trans man who's kind of attracted to men, which is also, um, you know, similar to my identity. I'm more non-binary, but on the trans masculine end of the spectrum. And some of the stuff you write about, like people going, why would you transition if you're attracted to, to men? Like, I totally got asked that. Or, you know, my mother was like, so are you getting divorced now? And I was like, no, I'm just more gay like <laughs> with my husband. <laughs> Gayer than ever. Gayer than ever with my husband, exactly. <laughs> Who already knew I was queer. So, and was like, you weren't that feminine. Because I was always like, how do you feel, dear? And I was like, you're just the same person. <laughs> just different pronouns. <laughs> Anyway, enough about me. I do want to talk about your book, and it's about family. So let's start from why family? Why you could have focused on other aspects of your 
experiences, I'm sure. Why focus on family? <laughs> I mean, a few reasons. You know, number one, one of the major reasons I focus on family, period, it really dates back to some of the like earliest labor union people saying like it's it's the bread and roses uh, mentality. It's, you know, some of the original things that labor unions were fighting for was not just a livable wage, but also weekends off, also holidays, also like health benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want the bare minimum, which is bread. You want roses too. You want beauty in your life. And I had, I spent so many years fighting in the trans movement for some of the more basic things mm -hmm. that I just felt really called to think about, you know, to, to sort of give that over to the next generation of leaders and, and older trans folks who are still doing that work and to fight for what comes next when people have the bare minimum, or even if they don't, how do we continue to enrich and beautify and strengthen our lives so that they're not just lives worth saving, but lives worth living. And for me, that's what family really was. It really was, even if the world was horrific and brutal, I could come home and I could not just be safe, but be loved. And to have that in multiple ways, you know, from for my family, my partner and my kids, you know, that just seemed so important and powerful for me. Um, and so that's just the personal reason why I did it. And then the really practical reason is just that um, my agent and then my book publisher made it super clear that this was a, a place where there just wasn't a lot. And so they're mm -hmm. like, great, this is the thing you know about, like, let's do this because it doesn't exist that much right now. So, so yeah, those are the two, per the personal and the practical. I love that. Personal and practical are a beautiful way to put it. And, um, and I think both are valid, right? Exactly. I noticed straight away this stood out because there aren't that many narratives out there that have been written about. But I love this idea of like your family as a place to feel safe and loved by your partner and children. Because I, I definitely feel that in my own life and how much it allows me to then be out in the world and fight for other things, you know. And I think that often people feel that if you're trans, is anybody ever going to love you? Are you going to have a family? I know those are questions that I've asked myself, that people have asked me. I'm a family therapist. I've had clients ask me that. I've had parents of trans youth going, oh, my God, who's ever going to love my baby? Are they going to have their own babies? Let's talk about reproduction, right? Those are things that I've talked about hundreds of times to people. And so I, I love the idea that family is that hearth that you can return to and then to do the bigger work, right? And so let's talk about all of the different things that contribute to making a family, right? You start from love and falling in love, which is beautiful. Sometimes. Sometimes, but sometimes it's hard. So let's talk about the hard stuff. You know, let's talk about going from love and falling in love, which can be romantic, to actually creating a family, which is a lot harder in my books. <laughs> and in yours for too. me, these kids just showed up on my doorstep. So <laughs> the actual parenting of them was not hard. Um, but I mean, the actual parenting of them was difficult, the raising of them. them. Um, but the actually becoming a parent for us, nope, it was very simple. We got a phone call and we were parents to my partner's niece and nephew. And that was pretty much it. Um, and then, the you know, obviously the baby came later. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's not the case 
for most LGBTQ folks, for most trans folks, it requires a little bit more work. <laughs> that is true. But also, I think that your journey speaks to how we can come to family in so many ways. It can be that phone call. It can be just like, there you are. There is an opportunity for you to like move up and meet a responsibility or your partners, you know. And so what was that like for you to kind of become a parent pretty much almost overnight, you know? And then, yes, then there was a baby. But let's start with the becoming a parent overnight. Yeah, you know, I do not recommend it. Number one. Um, zero out of five stars. Um, <laughs> wouldn't try again. Um, yeah, it, it really was. It was horrific. It was really, really, really brutal. Um, and I went in just like the way that I go into everything with just like pure naive stupidity. Um, over, I mean, like I live in a world of rainbows and unicorns. You yeah. know, I've just always believed like everything's going to work out, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't believe that anymore. But I did when they came into our family, which is now almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I went in really with just like naive optimism and pretty much a weekend realized that this was in fact not going to be fun, um, that it was just going to be a lot of hard work for a really long time. And this September we'll celebrate our 10th year as a family. We'll have a special day and everything, same as we do every year. Um, and every year has been hard and has gotten harder. You know, parenting is no joke. Sometimes they put me on these panels, you know, these like queer oh, yeah. family panels. And then some like, you know, young, bright eyed queer person will raise their hand and be like, what advice do you have for people who want to become parents? And then my advice is always wait. And then they, everyone laughs. And I'm like, this is not a joke. Like, you better have your shit together if you want to become a parent. And I know that's like you know, an unpopular opinion because people will be like, oh, but you're never really ready. Mm. You're like more ready or less ready for sure. Oh, I was like 32 when I became a parent and I was not ready. And then I was, oh God, how many years old when I became a step parent, which is also a different uh, experience than being a bio parent. But I was like in my 40s and I was also not ready. <laughs> and now I'm 50 and I'm like, maybe some days on a good day, I understand what a good parent is. And I've also started family therapy and I still felt not ready. So yeah, I, I so agree with you. Wait, and also it's no joke. And Really think about it because your life will never be the same for the rest of your life. As long as your children leave, which hopefully is beyond ourselves, your life is forever changed, at least in my experience. I don't know in yours, but. Yeah. I mean, you should have zero. If you have a partner or partners, like you should have zero doubts about those people as human beings. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. I do not know how I would have gotten through any of this if I wasn't married to the best person on the planet. And even then, it's just it's just been incredibly difficult. I, yeah, let, if if you don't mind, let's talk about how becoming a parent overnight impacted your relationship. Mm. Because, you know, there is no way that becoming a parent doesn't impact a relationship. There's a reason why so many relationships honestly crumble when, you know, in the first few years of parenting, because it's so much pressure. And so obviously just share what you feel like you can share. Maybe you've already processed and sharing the book. But yeah, what was that impact for you? You know, I feel so lucky because um, I have like kind of like surrogate parents um, who are this like middle-aged lesbian couple. They live in LA. 
um, when I was working on uh, one of the gay, one of the gay marriage fights, I stayed in their house and lived with them for like three months. So they're kind of like my second set of parents. Mm-hmm. And they just like, ever since their girls were little, they've had such a really incredible relationship with them. Just a really great give and take as parents that I've always admired. And so when, when our kids came to live with us in the beginning, I sat down with Sam and Aaron, you know, I sat down with them and I just said, so you're doing something right. Like, what is it? How did you get here with your kids? And they're the first thing that they told me, the first and really only thing they told me is the relationship between you and your partner matters more than literally everything else. Mm. If you are not good, then they are not good. That is so real. And I think this happens especially to, to straight couples is they get so caught up in parenting and there's now and has been for quite some time this really, I think, really toxic uh, conflation of like motherhood and like, I don't, I don't even know what it is. It's just like wh- straight women in my life, they just lose their identity completely and being a mom becomes it, it. And if they're not sacrificing all of who they are for that, then like, ooh, your friends, your mom, aunts, the internet, everyone is going to come for you. Mm -hmm. And for them to say that, I was like, okay, that ended up being really, really important. And so it was like, if we had a friend that could babysit the kids, we did date night. Every Friday, we did date night. We went out, we we talked about the kids, yes, and other things, hopefully, and just like held hands and looked at each other and checked in. And talked about hard things and not so hard things. Um, And, you know, obviously we did not do things perfectly. And there were very hard moments. Whatever disagreements we had, you know, whatever small dynamics were coming up prior to the kids, they all really came to the fore. Stuff around class and Mm -hmm. classism and gender. I mean, like all of that stuff really came out in full throttle. (laughs) <laughs> during okay. during those early months and years of parenting the, our big kids. Um, but really, really focusing on us was really important. And if you ask my big kids now who, you know, if, the, if you ask them who I love the most, they'll say it's my partner. Yeah. And, and that's what I've told them. And that that's okay, right? Because you are like the the stable unit within which they're kind of being parented. And I love what you said that there is something toxic about, in a way, um, you know, parenting is so important to me, absolutely central to my life. And yet I have seen this kind of toxic overly identification. I think especially cis white women with motherhood. And then what happens is that they're so overly identified with motherhood than if children deviate from their hopes and expectations and dreams, including sometimes they happen to have a trans child or a non-binary child, and then they feel um, they don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. They don't know what to do because this was not the plan in air quotes, right? This is not what uh, they expected, right? And there's so very little to be expected with parenting, right? I don't know if that's your experience, but there's so much unknown. Tell me about your relationship to the unknown in in this fa- journey of family and parenting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, a story I, I talk about in the book, but I, I have this, you know, this acquaintance of mine who she and her husband have, um, she's a member of the trans community and she and her husband have fostered, I, I think hundreds of at-risk adolescents mm-hmm. Um, 
in a like sort of a temporary situation and then ended up adopting two and then I think three siblings. Um, and she, I like had her on a panel that I did once, you know, that I facilitated. And, you know, she said most of her frustrations as a parent could be traced back to her kid or kids not behaving the way that she wanted them to and just behaving the way that they were. Yes. And that most of the devastation and heartbreak and frustration with parenting comes from kids just being who they are and not who you want them to be. And so she said, as much as you can throw out who you want them to be and really just get super comfy with who they actually are, the less parenting can feel like unknown and the more it can feel like an adventure that you're having. And that's like, it's still so easy to say and so hard to do. I don't know how she does it because she has kids with special needs, you know, and, and as our kids have struggled with a variety of things, I'm just like, how does she do it? You know? And, and so that's, that's one of the constant reminders that I have for myself is just like, am I frustrated because this awesome kid is just like not some fantasy kid in my head, but is actually just the, the real person. Um, Absolutely. And you don't know which kid you're going to get in every way, you know, whether you become a parent overnight, like you did, or whether you're a bio parent or a step parent, the kid is going to be who they are. And I love that. that That's the best parenting advice ever, but much easier said than done. And then there's not just your expectations, but your partner or partners too, right? You talked about how, you know, those differences around class and gender really get highlighted when parenting are there moments, especially around gender, given that this is the Gender Stories podcast, so people do love to talk about gender, although I end up talking about all sorts of things, um, especially around gender and parenting, have there been salient moments for you that really stand out? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly when our big kids came to live with us, they were one and three. And so my daughter, Haley, was only one um, and came to us with uh, almost no clothes at all. And so what we did was buy clothes and then I would, you know, just sort of go to the like used clothing store, or whatever, pick up little Carhartt overalls or like, you know, little, like little, you know, Doc Martin boots, you know, things that I thought were very cute. Um, and I was mindful that, you know, her being assigned female at birth, I was mindful of what the world was going to project onto her mm-hmm. um, because it was projected onto me, not by my parents, luckily, but, you know, I still lived in a world. I didn't live on some commune where I didn't have any inputs. (laughs) Um, And I didn't want to project that onto her, you know? And so if I came home with some clothes for her or whatever, it was never a dress, a tiara, a a fairy costume. It was never like a daddy's little anything ever. That's just not what I wanted. And at one point, uh, you know, my partner did ask, so like, how come you're like dressing her like a boy? And I was like, well, clothes doesn't have gender, so I'm not. And my partner was like, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. Um, our society does assign gender to clothing, and you know that. And I'm asking why you're only picking clothes from one end of the gender spectrum, And I explained, well, I don't want to like push femininity on her, you know? Um, And he was like, that sounds pretty sexist to me. 
Um, like what is wrong with femininity? What is wrong with frilly, dress, frilly dresses and tights and tiaras mm-hmm. and butterfly wings? Like what is, what is wrong with those things? They aren't inherently bad. Like, I'm sorry if you were, you that felt like a burden to you, but you mm-hmm. can't project your own experience of femininity onto this little kid who's not even a toddler yet, you know, who's like can't even walk. And so as with most of our big discussions, I like quickly realized that I was wrong. Um, and, you know, from then on, just really tried to pick things from across the gender spectrum and until, until she was old enough to pick her own clothes. Um, of course, there's just that limited amount of time of a couple of years before they start to have opinions. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, and then by the time they're free, like they have opinion because I did, I was picking from all over the gender spectrum for my kiddo. I've, I have to say maybe a little more, more heavily on the masculine end of the spectrum for similar reason to yours. But then there was no doubt that by the time she could tell me what she wanted, that like free, she had a whole year of never wearing um, trousers. There was all skirts, all dresses all the time. My kid loves femininity and princesses and also is very much into girl power. And she's 17 now, but it's kids know who they are, you know? And I remember even my kid being aware of like our social context. I like five. She'd be like, there's a lot of husbands in our family. Where are all the girls? And I was like, there are a lot of husbands in our queer family. (laughs) I need to find you some more feminine possibility models not you know they're not uh, you know more on the masculine end of the spectrum <laughs> yeah it's parenting and gender is complicated i find <laughs> i don't know about you it's but really I find complicated. complicated and weirdly enough um covid has taken a lot of the complicated nature out of it you know for example i was just thinking with leo our toddler who's actually now not even a toddler anymore almost four but basically he refused to get a haircut through all of COVID. So his hair just got longer and longer and longer and longer. And, you know, like it doesn't really tangle that much. It doesn't get greasy. It's, it was long enough that it wasn't in his face. So like, who cares, you know? And similarly, we dress him just across the gender spectrum, whatever people hand down to us. Great. But like, yeah, sure. Skirts, dresses, leggings with hearts on them. He doesn't care. So we don't care. And I, it occurs to me that his ability to continue to be gender creative without even like there, that doesn't even exist because there's no gender to conform to or to rebel against. It's just mm-hmm. clothes, you know, and, and it, that's really been empowered and strengthened by the fact that there's no other inputs. He's not yeah. going to preschool or even playing with other kids in a park. Like I think two weeks ago, we played at a park with other kids for the first time in over a year, which is his whole life mm-hmm. as far as his memory is concerned at, you know, almost four. Absolutely. And there was one point where he ran off to something and some other kid at the park asked me like, oh, where'd your little girl go? And I said, oh, he, you know, he went over there and she was like, well, he can't be a boy. He has long hair. And he didn't hear it. Right. But it was really that point. That I was like, oh my God, he's never heard that. He has no, literally no clue. That yeah. usually boys have short hair and usually girls have long hair. He doesn't even, he has no idea. And so it's just been, yeah. it's been so funny to see him kind of raised outside of that completely. Mm-hmm. It's just been, yeah, it's just been a, a fun adventure. So he still doesn't have a sense. He'll say that he's a boy, but for him, that does not mean that he doesn't wear dresses because he doesn't know that it doesn't mean he wears dresses. 
Yeah, and by the time that kids are four, they do have that sense, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, I'm a boy and a girl. Like, they know who they are, especially if there is that expansiveness around them, and and I love that. And, yeah, and I had that moment of, like, oh, my God, I wasn't, like, gender creative enough. Like, I didn't – I did gender my child, quite honestly, like, you know, in terms of pronouns. And I know some families don't do that, but then I was, like, but the gender was such a broad landscape and full of – trans and queer people and that's his own gender creativity and it sounds like it's similar for your kids in a way i think so hold on one second come here sweetie come here sweet come here give me your words sweet pea come here dada took poppy downstairs for you hold on one second already i know that's it's a live parenting moment that's okay that's what happens yeah there we go okay keep going Uh, that's okay so talking about parenting i mean and we were talking about parenting and gender but also parenting and just how it's like it's just such a part of life right it's like especially during covid i don't know about you but there is like we we work from home we parent from home Everything is happening at the same time. Our children are going to school from home. Mm-hmm. What's it like for you and for your family? I mean, it seems to be for us the same as it is for everyone, which is like the highest highs, the lowest lows. Um, this I actually just posted this on Instagram just last night thinking about this, you know, especially for Leo, who's, you know, I'm holding in my arms right now. <laughs> You know, right now he's just in this stage where he wants to sleep in the in the bed with me. Um, and given that he's, you know, given that he's almost four and he knows how to sleep in the bed by himself and all of that, like, I just let him. And there is such a, just a really intense and high connection to and comfort with and, and knowing, I think, between us, you know, just truly knowing Um that we can really be much more intuitive with each other as a family, um, you know, much, just much more symbiotic, you know, there's just that give and the take um, and so much unspoken, you know, just because we all know each other so well now. Um, And that's been really lovely in a way. It feels very old fashioned. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about my ancestors who probably all slept in one room, for most of their lives with many kids. My dad had 13 brothers and sisters. Um, and and I just think, you know, they did. They ate, they slept, they drank, they farmed. You know, I come from farmers and coal miners. And like mm-hmm. that, that they did all of that together. You know, they were with each other all the time. And of course it's obnoxious and annoying. Dear Lord, just let me pee, you know. But in another way, there is something that is very, that does feel very, uh, you know, na- I guess natural about it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also been horrible, especially for our older kids. You know, to be 10 and 13, that is literally the time you know, anthropologically, when you distinguish yourself from your parents, when you start to have an identity that is not them and not theirs, and to not have a place for them to do that and not have a place for them to take it, you know, just as I love that Leo doesn't have a whole lot of other inputs right now, 10 and 13 year olds should have many more inputs other than just us, YouTube and Netflix. Okay. Absolutely. It's been horrible. It's been 
it's awful. Just like, oh my yeah. God, get, get out of my face. And they want me to get out of their face, you know? So it is, it's just the highest highs and the lowest lows. That, uh, that is very true. I mean, uh, my oldest was 16 when COVID hit and, and it was such a, it's such a difficult age to be isolated those teenage years. And like you said, there is something very protective in some ways, not having those outside influences as a family, because you're not really exposed to everybody else's opinion of your family. Have you found that, you know, as kind of a trans and queer family, other people have opinions about your family when you're out in the world and they're maybe not always so supportive or nurturing? Yeah, what's your experience of your the way your family is perceived and received and welcomed by the world around you? You know, I don't know. You know, I kind of, in many ways, ascribe to the, the you know, Ru RuPaul's saying that, like, what other people think of me is none of my business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, so there's a lot of times that I'm like, I'm sure we go out places and, you know, people may look askance or have questions or whatever. I don't know. I can't honestly like it's having kids is so much of a handful. I'm not paying attention to them. Um, <laughs> it's so true. And You're busy. Are, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, I'm just busy trying to keep it all together as much as possible. Um, and you know, in terms of safety, there are, especially when we leave Portland, you know, there are times when I feel that protective instinct, you know, yeah. flare up if you will. Um, the armor just kind of like chinks into place. And, you know, I do have to be very alert and very aware of what others are thinking about me and us. Um, but largely speaking, other than on the internet, you know, we're incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by people who, you know, are pretty excited that there's a, a family near them. <laughs> um, for example, one of our kids' friends' moms sent a baby gift to school uh, to give to my kid, to give to us when I was pregnant with Leo. And in the note, it said, thank you for telling your story publicly. It's been the perfect opportunity for me to talk to my kids about all the different kinds of families that exist in the world and all the different ways that people can be in the world. Um, and so I think a lot of heterosexual cisgender people are just like, this is great. I forgot to tell my kids that this could exist, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really, we've been incredibly privileged in that way. I love the story. Cause I was going to say, you have been pretty public in some ways about your story and about your pregnancy. And I was going to ask the kind of the impact on that, but I love this, this positive ink impact, right? That, oh yeah, this is a great way to talk to kids about there are all sorts of different families, you know, and I remember, you know, my kid when she was younger, dragging friends up to the studio to show like the belly cast to be like, see, I told you he used to be like she and he's my mom. Here's the proof, right? Because <laughs> I was like, sure, show my enormous belly cast to all your friends, you know, when she was like six or seven. I think now the conversation has changed. Um, but even now, you know, it's like, I just have two dads and one of my dad is my mom. And that's that. <laughs> yeah, kids don't yeah. really stress about it too much. No. Um, oh, shoot. What was I going to say there? Oh, um, and what I want to make sure is that we don't lose, you know, just the incredibly brutal backlash online. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes people reach, will reach out to me and be like, oh, I want to tell my trans pregnancy story publicly. And I'm like, don't. Don't. Mm -hmm. You'll regret it. Yeah. And some of them listen to me. Most of them don't. 
And then they come back to me and they're like, holy shit. I'm like, yeah, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you. I mean, no joke. I know several now transgender, trans and non-binary folks who've told their story publicly or tried to Mm -hmm. um, and have ended up in deep mental health distress. Oh, I can absolutely believe that. I think that being a visible trans person online can really make you a target, especially right now when there are so many people who seem to be really focused on demonizing trans community in every way. And, you know, the wave from the UK is coming. And uh, before moving to the US, I lived in the UK for 15 years and I have many friends there. And I'm I'm so anxious about this wave of turf coming here because I can see the impact is had on my friends and communities, mental health in the UK. And, and I see it coming. It really feels like this just enormous wave coming at us and not sure that folks really understand just how uh, impactful it could be if we don't stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a great opportunity for, you know, trans folks who are assigned female at birth to be learning from transgender women because they've been in this for as long as they have existed in modern society Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the UK and in the US anyway. Yeah. Obviously different elsewhere and in, in, in indigenous communities here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, this is where, I mean, that's who I turned to. Like, yeah. my, even like some of my drag friends, like I'm friends with a, a really famous drag queen who is on RuPaul's Drag Race. I was texting him. He's not trans, yeah. but he plays, you know, he plays one on TV in many cases. I just like, how do you, how do you deal with it? Yeah. And, you know, my other trans friends, especially black trans women, I reached out to them and I was mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed to ask you this question, but like, how do you do it? Like, how mm-hmm. do you find that resilience, that courage, that confidence in the face of this? Because I knew That's- it was bad intellectually. I didn't know in my body mm-hmm. what it was like to be targeted in the way that I have been targeted. I just... I just didn't even think about how it would feel. I just didn't. It was stupid, but there we go. It is what it is. There are certain experiences that you, that piece of embodied cognition, right? We don't know what they feel like until we experience them. Mm -hmm. And there's something about being the recipient that you feel in your bones, you know, being the recipient of that type of hatred, that it's bone deep, really. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. And I feel like I could keep talking about family for, for a long time. But, you know, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk more at some point in the future. But for now, one of the questions I always ask is, is there anything we haven't talked about that you were really hoping to talk about or that you want to leave our listeners with? And I just want to make sure that there is an opportunity for you to share that. Yeah, absolutely. Um Oh, got his hair in my chapstick. Now, no one can see the video, but he has now That's fallen okay. asleep in my I arms. know. I was going to say, listeners can't see the video, but this is like the sweetest thing. Like the second half of this interview is like Tristan just like holding his baby. I think it's he's your youngest, right? My then. big baby. Yeah, exactly. Your big baby oh, yeah. and parenting while also doing an interview. It's kind of, it's amazing. Yeah, it's one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite photos of uh, another trans man who had a baby that I'm friends with. Um, is he was supposed to give a keynote 
And his baby just like would not settle down for his partner. So he just literally strapped the carrier on and delivers the whole keynote with a three month old baby strapped to him. And I was like, yes, dad. Yes, absolutely. That's what parenting looks like. It really is. I mean, it really is. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the final thing I'll say is what I say to all queer people who are interested in parenting and, and family building, which is, you know, hold tightly to your vision of becoming a family and hold lightly to how you get there. Because mm-hmm. biology is so complicated and messy and weird and love is so complicated and messy and weird and kids are complicated and messy and weird. And sometimes what I see is people have this vision of like, well, but I have to be the one to carry the baby and they'll push and push and push and spend years trying to be the person doing it. And then finally they're like, oh, I guess my partner will. And once the baby is born, there's just like, there's just never a point that you look at your kid and you're like, oh, I wish we'd chosen sperm donor 452 instead of 248. You just never do. You don't look at your baby and think, oh, I would love you more if I'd given birth to you instead of my partner. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. You just end up with the kids you're supposed to end up with. And you try things, and if it doesn't work, you just try something else. Mm-hmm. And for us, it did end up working um, to have, you know, to have Leo. But we made an agreement: we're going to try for six months. We're going to open the door. I'm going to stop testosterone. If a baby, metaphorically speaking, walks through the door, great, right? We're just going to remove the barriers. If it happens, great. If not, we didn't want to do IVF. You know, we didn't want to do a lot of um, other things because the whole point of doing a baby this way is to make it easier than the first way. Um, and so we just decide this is how long we're going to try. And if it works great, if not, we close the door, I go back on tea and we enjoy the kids that we have. Um, and I think that is, you know, that lower stakes approach, um, has really served us. And so that's usually what I tell people is just never know how you're going to get there, but it'll happen. I love that message. Cause I feel as queer folks, if there is one thing we know is how to, come to family in all sorts of ways. And so just to really embrace that is so precious to me, you know, and yeah, as somebody who's a parent, both by biology and by partnership and having those, you know, that kid walk through the door. I love that. I love that approach. Any call to action that you want to leave with our listeners, anything that you would like maybe allies to do, because, you know, I I love that message to, to trans and queer folks, like stay open to family, however it comes to you, but any messages for cis allies? Yeah, I mean, a lot. That's why I wrote a whole book. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, I truly, yes. I've spent the last 20 years of my life working with, mm-hmm. uh, that's not That's not true. How old am I? 30? Mm-hmm. I mean, I sort of first started doing trans organizing when I was 16. And so, you know, for 22 years, I've been working with cis people on trans shit. <laughs> and I, and it is it, there is, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to how do you examine the internalized stuff. There's a lot to some of the facts and figures. And then there's a lot to the tools. It's the sort of head, heart, hands model. Um, and I, I did, I put as many as I could fit into this book without it feeling teachy, you know? I think you did an amazing job. Like I enjoyed reading it, but I could also see how you were appealing to that kind of um, that heart to heart connection that I think people need to feel to kind of 
change the way they look at LGBTQ folks and especially trans folks, I think. So, yeah, I totally agree. Listeners, please do buy the book. Uh, Buy it for family members. It's going to make a great present for whatever holiday you celebrate or just because uh, maybe we're starting to see family again now that we're vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So the book is How We Do Family. And uh, you can find it at any independent bookstore or wherever you get your books from. And thank you so much, Tristan, for giving your time and uh, and your your baby, your big baby's asleep now. Look at and his little been, face. I know this is like the sweetest moment. Oh, I just I love wish. him so much. But it is also like that's just like a totally perfect example. He comes up the stairs crying. I'm like, oh, he's just tired. I know the blanket you get. I'm just going to grab it. I know exactly what to say to him. I'll, I will hold you on my lap, but you'd have to be quiet because I'm having the conversation with a friend. You know, it's just there's an ease there that we've really gotten to, yeah. I think, because of COVID. And, um, and it really is so sweet. And what a gift to be able to kind of see that parenting in action and see that ease. And I, and I think there's a lot of that beauty in your book you know, of kind of the how you come to family sometimes can be challenging, can be unexpected, but if you just open that door, <laughs> here you are. You it will walk now, through. <laughs> exactly. And you've been doing this for 10 years now, right? So <laughs> feels like forever. <laughs> it always does. I wish I could tell you it gets easier. I mean, done this for 17 years, it just keeps feeling like forever in my experience. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with our listeners. And listeners, please do get How We Do Family by Tristan Rees. It's an amazing read. And I look forward to hearing what you think about this book. And thank you, Tristan.